That is our desire that he would lead us this morning and lead us in his in his word. And we've been preaching through the gospel of Mark now for several weeks. And um, I want you to open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, a very familiar passage of Scripture, as Stephen mentioned, as you heard Michael read, the rich young ruler, as he is typically called. Whenever you weave all of the gospel stories together, those are all adjectives or descriptions of this, of this man. And this is where we find ourselves in the Word of, of God the, this morning. Not a sermon that I've chosen to preach for Memorial Day, but in God's providence where we're at in, in His text. Now, I don't know if you've ever witnessed to someone, hopefully you have if you're a believer, and I don't know if how long it's been since you've done that, but I would guess at some point, if, if you have ever shared Christ with someone, you've run across an individual who saw no need to consider the, the claims of the gospel because they thought they were a pretty good person. I mean, the two most common responses that, that people give, at least in, in America, and, and I would say the second one is, is anywhere in the world, at least the two most common responses people give for not coming to Christ is, number one, the church is full of hypocrites, right? You've heard that before. I even used that before I came to Christ. The second one is just like it. It's said in a, in a different way, but it's, it's the same reason. It touches the same reason. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I would say if you walked up to the average individual, whether in McDonald's or wherever you would go after church today, and you would ask them, are you a good person? Do you believe that, that you're a good person? Almost without fail, the answer would go something like this. Well, I'm not, I'm not perfect, but, but yeah, I believe I'm a, I'm a pretty good, I'm a pretty good person, or I try to be, right? I mean, you talk to people, that's, that's typically the way that individuals will answer. Well, in the passage today, Jesus encounters such a person. And we're going, he, he's going to show us how he evangelizes these kinds of people. And maybe in the process, he might evangelize you. This story is about a religious seeker and how Jesus is, is, is sensitive not to his perceived need, but, but his true condition. This man thinks he's seeking God, but he's not. In fact, the Bible tells us that there's none that seeks after God, according to, to Romans 3. And, and this, is, this is where Jesus reveals to this man his, his real issue, and it's not what the man thinks, which is why it's so important in the Gospel record. It's, this scene is recorded in, in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. And that's probably because it's absolutely pivotal in, in understanding salvation. You remember Jesus is in the Perean part of his ministry. He's left Galilee and he's in this year-long period of time when he is instructing his disciples. He's leading them to the cross. He's going to the cross himself. And he is pouring into them a proper understanding of the kingdom, of regeneration, of salvation, of what it means to be his disciple and how to rightly interpret the world and things around. So he's talked about marriage, he's talked about divorce, he's talked about children, and now he's dealing with possessions. But in this lesson on possessions, 
he talks about a, a proper understanding of, of how to receive salvation or how salvation comes to a person. You probably read this story before. You probably taught it in Sunday school if, if you went there. It's the story where Jesus encounters a rich man whose attachment to his wealth provided such an insurmountable hurdle that, that he couldn't follow Christ, or he wouldn't follow Christ. Now, I realize you've heard this story before, but, but I want you to, to, to look beneath the surface. That's what we're going to see this morning, because this is not just a story about a man who wouldn't choose Jesus because he had too much stuff. It's about the exposure of a self-seeker. And I know the word seeker is used quite a bit in our culture today. This is a self-seeker. And in the story, Jesus breaks every modern evangelism norm that you can think of and shows this man what it means to possess eternal life. And this man really wasn't seeking God. You say, how do you know that? You can't see his heart. Well, I know that. The evidence of that is because when he was offered God, he rejected him. He walked away. That's how you know. I can't see his heart. You can't see his heart. But the text says, when he was offered God... He rejected God. This man's choice revealed his true heart's desires, just like your choices do, just like my choices do. And there are a lot of people who, who are part of churches because they seek a more satisfying, a more, more uh, fulfilled life, and if you're willing to throw in heaven, that's, that's all the better. But whenever you really get beneath the surface, truly following Christ is optional. If there's something that has to go, it will not be their pleasure. It will be what they truly seek. And Jesus offers this man the real thing, but it's going to cost him his pride and his possessions, and for this man the cost was just too high. Now, we're only going to cover verses 17 through, through 22 this morning, and Michael read the, the entire... Uh, pericope for us, the entire section. But this entire passage declares the impossibility of men in coming to God on their own, and it reveals that a man will exchange his own soul for the goods of the world unless God intervenes. So we normally would give you an outline, so you're going to have to uh, listen carefully or write quickly. Because the outline this morning would be two lessons from a self-centered seeker. Two lessons from a self-centered seeker. And verses 17 through 20 teach us the lesson comes from the the blindness of his self-admiring pride. The blindness of his self-admiring pride. Verses 17 through 20. This is where Jesus encounters the man. The man bows before him, kneels before him, asks him a question, and Jesus asks him a question back. And so you get a lesson from a self-centered seeker, and the first lesson comes from the blindness of his self-admiring pride. The second lesson is found in verses 21 through 22. It's where Jesus looks at the man after he answers, And Jesus feels love for him, and then he tells him, one thing you lack, sell all you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasures in heaven, and follow me. So that lesson is the blockade of his soul-adoring possessions. 
So there's blindness of pride, and then there's a blockade of possessions, if you want to simplify it, since it's not on the board for you. Let's look at the first lesson that comes from this man's self-admiring pride. Look at verse 17, if you would. It says, and his, as he was setting out on a journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Here Jesus is setting out on his journey, some of your translations may say. It's literally as he's proceeding on the way. The, the way, Mark has told us, is, is, is his path to the cross. The way leads to Jerusalem. And so Mark is saying Jesus is continuing on the way. He's continuing to march to the cross. And immediately after this scene, you're going to hear Jesus give this second passion declaration about why he's come. He's going to the cross. So Jesus is, is continuing. He's proceeding on the way. He's moving toward Jerusalem. And here a man interrupts his, his path, interrupts his stride. A man runs up and he kneels before him and he requests a practical theology lesson. The other writers describe who this man is. Mark just says, a man knelt before him. A man ran up. And knelt before him. Mark says, tells us how this man approaches Jesus, what he does, but he doesn't give any descriptions of who this man is. So the other gospel writers do. The other gospel writers tells us this man is is rich, meaning he had he had many possessions. He's also young. He's not an older man, and that's important because Luke says that he's a he's an archon. He's a he's a ruler, likely meaning of a local synagogue. So. That's why the man is called the rich young ruler. He's wealthy. He's a lot of possessions. He's, he's a successful lay leader in his local Jewish synagogue. And the fact that he's young makes that even more impressive because that's where the, the origin of the term elder comes from. It's typically somebody who's older. He's got more life experience. So this man has risen to the, to the position of a leader, not just because of his possessions, but because of, because of his fastidious keeping of the, of, of the law. And this man runs up to Jesus. He bows on his knee, which would have been out of character. You remember from um, the uh, the prodigal son or the tale of two sons where the shame that, that it would have been for the father to run to the son who was repenting and coming home. That, w- that would have been, that would have been uh, not normal. Well, You just didn't do that. No respectable person would do that. So this man is who's running up to Jesus and kneeling before Jesus shows us something about his about his desperation and the way that he approaches Christ. But I want you to look at the question that he asked Jesus because that's where Jesus focuses. He says, "Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit?" eternal life. Now, Mark uses several terms in this, in this passage to tell us that the topic is salvation. He uses eternal life here. If you look at verse 21, it says uh, Jesus tells him that he's going to have treasure in heaven. Verse 23, but the word saddened him and he, and he went away grieving because he was one who had much property. He, he goes away from the kingdom of God. In verse 26, 
the disciples say, who then can be, who then can be saved? Verse 23. I read verse 22. I'm sorry. Talks about entering the kingdom of God. So we know the topic. The topic is salvation. And this man comes up and asks Jesus about himself inheriting eternal life. Now, eternal life to a Jew meant meant more than heaven. It it was it was the life of God or life with God, according to Daniel chapter chapter twelve verse two. It was re- related to the resurrection of faithful the faithful children of Abraham. And it was entry into the eternal kingdom. You remember in Luke 16, where you have the rich man and Lazarus. He, he, he goes to Abraham's bosom. He goes to, he goes to paradise. And after that, there's coming a, a kingdom and a, and a resurrection. And so it was an earthly kingdom. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. They'll rise. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so the end, at the end of the age, when the Messiah returns, there's going to be a resurrection, there's going to be a kingdom, and that was life with God. That was, that was eternal life. And you'll remember that the Pharisees are the ones that believed in a resurrection. So that tells you what sect this, this ruler, this young ruler, belongs to, or at least is sympathetic with. And the question he's asking the Lord is, what must I do in order to become a partaker of salvation at the end of the age, the kingdom? And what's driving him is, is his desire for assurance, that he would attain it. And you can see that in him running, you can see that in him bowing, and you can see that in, in, the, in the fact that he asked Jesus this. He calls him rabbi, he calls him teacher. And Matthew uses the word possess. What must I do to possess it? I, I want to be sure of it. I want it now. I want to know that I, that I have it now. He, he wanted peace of mind, just like a lot of people want. They want peace of mind. He wanted assurance, just like a lot of people. They want assurance, and they find assurance in, in all manners of, of things. And so the first thing that we, we could do is convene this man because he comes to the right place. I mean, there is no other name given under heaven whereby you might be saved other than Jesus Christ. No man comes to the Father but by Him. There is no salvation anywhere in the world, in any religion, in anyone other than the God-man, Jesus Christ. He alone was God. He alone went to the cross and shed His blood for the remission of sin. So this man comes to the right place, doesn't he? Praise the Lord. He comes to the right place. But he asked the wrong question. Look at verse 18. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now think of what Jesus says to this man. This man comes running. He comes bowing. He asks about the kingdom and eternal life. I mean, what a witnessing opportunity, right? He comes and falls down, asks Jesus about eternal life, and Jesus gives him a dictionary quiz. He asked him about the definition of good. In fact, the only two things that Jesus says to this man in his entire passage is what's the definition of good? He forces him to ask that question, and then he says, sell all of your earthly possessions and follow me. I mean, the whole idea of you know the law is connected to this question, what is, what is good? What's the definition of good? And sell all of your earthly possessions and, and, and give them to the poor and follow me. 
But that's the key to the whole story. That's what's beneath the surface. That's the x-ray that Jesus uses, the MRI, the CT scan of this man's heart. It shows you what Jesus sees. The questions that God asks you reveal what Jesus sees. He doesn't just ask arbitrary questions. And he knows the very questions to ask because he can see your heart, doesn't he? What Jesus aims at is where the issues are. And this man's self-righteous pride and his possessions are as God. And this man knew that there was eternal life and he wanted it. But in the end, he wasn't willing to give up what he had to, to get it. So think about the questions that he asks. Now think of this also in the terms of modern evangelism. I mean, Jesus doesn't even have to ask this guy, if you died today and you were to stand before God and God would say, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Jesus doesn't even have to ask that question, does he? <laughs> I mean, this man says, how do I go to heaven? That's what he wants to know. I mean, would you love to have that kind of witnessing opportunity? You go to McDonald's and somebody walks up to you and says, I see that you're in a suit. You must have come from church or Hopefully they say, I see the joy in your face and you're really kind. How can I go to heaven? What would you do? Uh, buh, 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 buh. <laughs> I don't know. Would you say, well, here's what you need to do. You need to ABC. You need to admit. You need to believe. You need to confess. Or here, bow your head. Pray after me. Here is the sinner's prayer. Is that what you do? What you need to do is invite Jesus into your heart. Is that how you'd respond to that person? This man comes the right way, he comes kneeling, he, he asks about the right topic, eternal life, he asks, what do I do now? I mean, everything looks in order. And I'm sure, there's no doubt, if Jesus would have, would have asked this man to pray a prayer, he would have prayed one if Jesus gave him one. He has no problem praying prayers. I, I'm sure he would have made a decision. He would have said, make a decision and publicly proclaim it. But Jesus doesn't do that. I mean, the fish comes to him, he has him on the line, and he doesn't reel him in. In fact, the man leaves the way that he came. So is Jesus a bad evangelist? Did he fail? Does Jesus need an EE course? <laughs> Did he miss a perfect opportunity? You have to be careful when you compare how we understand evangelism that our ideas don't indict the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We don't have better methods than he does. And you say, where's the problem? Well, Jesus shows us exactly where the problem is next, and it's in his definition of good. And that's what Jesus corrects. Jesus doesn't correct his attitude. He doesn't correct his posture. He doesn't correct his, his approach. He doesn't correct his question. He doesn't say you're seeking the wrong thing. He doesn't say you don't run or you don't bow. Don't pray that way. Pray this way. He says, why do you call me good? You've got a wrong definition of good. And that's the man's issue. And that's the pride part. Next, he says, you also love the world more than you do God. That's the possession part. And that's what he deals with next. You see, this story is about the first half of salvation, not the second half. This is pre-evangelism. And that's where you find the majority of people you probably deal with. Because not 
It's not normal, typically, if you're out sharing the gospel with somebody, to bump into the tree and the fruit fall off in your hand. I've had that happen. It's a wonderful experience. But most of the people that you'll deal with, it's pre-evangelism. It's about repentance first, and then faith. But faith never comes to this man because repentance doesn't. And Jesus puts him in a quandary with this question. Look at what he says next. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, do you think this man knew the attributes of God? Of course he did. I mean, he talks about how he was bar mitzvahed from 13 and he kept the law and he talks about the second decalogue, second half of the decalogue and, and he's a ruler in the synagogue. Of course he knows who God is. He, he knows Yahweh. He, he knows the attributes of, of God. In order to be a ruler, he had to have memorized the majority of the, of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch at least. So I mean, he knows probably more Bible than, than, than we do in here. And Jesus says, God alone is good. Why do, why do you call me why do you call me good? And so with that question, the man either has to acknowledge that Jesus is God or, or he has to acknowledge that he has a faulty definition of good. He's throwing the term around. And Jesus calls him to reflection. What, what does good mean? If somebody came to you and says, what, what does good mean? What would you say? I mean, if I ask that question, I'd probably have to think for a minute. Well, I mean, I mean, people come to my mind. Things come to my mind. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus' goodness belongs to God alone. And so that's the fundamental flaw in our world because it's the fundamental flaw from the fall. That's what's in the human art. The reason people think that they're good is they have a faulty definition of good. You see, there are degrees of badness, but there's only one good. There, is, there aren't degrees of goodness. There are degrees of badness. God establishes what is good. It's fixed. It's God. He is holy. And so, if you want to say, are you a good person? You should say to somebody, are you like God? Are you God? Now, you change that. No, I'm not God. But I'm a pretty good person. And that's what Jesus is doing to this rich young ruler. I mean, I'm not as bad as Hitler or someone who gives children drugs. I'm not. But there's not degrees of goodness. It goes one way and not the other. Good is not relative. The definition doesn't, doesn't change. But that's how people think. They compare themselves to other people and evaluate their goodness based upon what they see they believe is the goodness of another person. Which the Bible says you can't even do that because you don't know their motives. You can evaluate their actions, but you can't evaluate their motives. So there's even, not even a proper way to determine whether someone is good or not. But we always compare ourselves to each other. And while I'm just talking about that, you notice that you always compare yourself to somebody worse than you. You don't ever compare yourself to somebody better. Oh, yeah, I'm a dirtbag because of, you know, Stephen. He's a really good guy or whatever. You always find somebody find somebody worse, and I won't use a name for that. Like, okay. <laughs> we change definitions in our society. 
And this man changed the definition of good. I mean, someone who was called a model man in the 1940s or 50s is very different from what people would call a model man today. I mean, in the 50s, he'd be like my grandfather who fought in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. He'd be courageous. He'd be chivalrous, strong. A model man would be tough. He would be moral. He would be fighting wrong. And you can just look at the portrayals of, of, of a model man from the 1950s. He'd be like the Lone Ranger. Or in my dad's day, earlier than the 50s, like Roy Rogers. Some of you go, who in the world is the Lone Ranger and Roy Rogers? And some of you with gray hair going, I know who they are. But you get the point. Very different than today. Now, I wouldn't follow Winston Churchill's morality, but, but his boldness and his toughness. That's something that was honored. It was, it was modeled. But the definition today, a man is soft. He's understanding. He cares. He champions the rights of others rather than what's morally right. He spends quality time at home, maybe even a stay-at-home dad. He, he nurtures. He emotionally supports his, his, his wife. I mean, he's a lot like a woman, right? That's where the culture's at. Jesus says the definition of good is finite. It's fixed. It's absolute. It's defined by God, and He never changes. And so Jesus asks, why are you using that term that way? And with one statement, Jesus corrects this man's view of himself, of his view of Christ, and his view of God. And look where he goes next in verse 19. He doesn't give the man an opportunity to answer. He goes further. Why do you call me good? None is good except God alone. That definition is fixed. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He quotes the second half of the Decalogue. Matthew adds the summary, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes to the law after he talks about good. Talking to a man who believes he's good. Why? Why does Jesus go to the law? Why doesn't Jesus say, no, 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 look, you're, you're seeking the wrong thing. What you need to do, I love you. I'm, I'm there for you. I'll forgive you of your sin. Why doesn't Jesus go there? Because this man doesn't see his need yet. This is pre-evangelism. This is repentance. And so Jesus goes to the law because the law was given to reveal what was good, what good looks like. It's a mirror. And Jesus gives him a test. And the man fails miserably. (laughs) Jesus says, you know the law, that's what's good. He doesn't say, you know the commandments, keep them. He doesn't even imply this man could. He, he just points him to the commandments as the definition of good, and that's one of the primary roles of the, of the law. To put to the test and see our goodness, and in our case, the lack thereof. True goodness is God, and the law reveals that goodness. So when we're compared to the law, we stand condemned. We have been weighed in the balance already, and we have been... Found wanting. Anyone here pass the test of the law? Let me give you a hint. It's not graded on a curve. 
James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. The Bible treats it as a whole and, and says if you violated one command, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. How many lies do you have to tell before you're a liar? How many things do you have to steal before you become a thief? You're guilty of being a thief. How many laws do you have to break before you're a lawbreaker? One. But look at this man's response in verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. I passed the test. And I've done that since I've been bar mitzvah. I know the law, teacher. I do know the law. And I've kept it. And Matthew, in his account, gives even more details. The man says, All these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Luke says, Jesus' response is, you lack one thing. You only need one thing, and you don't have it. And so Jesus opens his eyes. He deals with his pride first. And now he deals with this blockade of his possessions, what his soul really adores, his pride and his possessions. Look at verse 21. The blockade of his soul-adoring possessions. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. You ever... uh, talk to somebody when you're counseling them or you're maybe witnessing to them and and you can just see through the veneer you ever you ever walked uh you know been walking around and, and you maybe not even talk to somebody but you see them and just the way that they're conducting themselves maybe you're observing them in a group maybe the way they're dressed whatever it is there you I mean you can just see that it's a facade that what they they genuinely have a need in their soul and you feel compassion for them? That's the Lord. Jesus looks and feels love for this, this sinner, and, and he says, there's one thing you lack. You lack one thing. It's in the emphatic position. He zeroes in on the issue. It's not, I've got all these things, and this is what else you need to add. It's one thing. Now, I want you to... To think back to Mark chapter 4, verse 11, because it will help you understand what, what Mark means when he says Jesus loved this man. Jesus loves this man. And he did not do with this man what he did with the, with the Pharisees. Mark chapter 4, verse 11. Here's another time where Jesus is teaching about evangelism. This is the parable of the soils. You remember Jesus gives the parable of the soils to the disciples because they're going, you're the Messiah and it's only us. Where's all the people and the kingdom? (laughs) In verse 10, as soon as he was alone, his followers, his disciples, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. 
And he said to them, to you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, they get everything in parables. So, and he quotes Isaiah, while seeing they may not see and not perceive, and while hearing they may not hear and not understand, otherwise they may not, they might return and and be forgiven. Jesus says, from this point forward, because of the rejection, the habitual rejection of those in Galilee to the preaching of the gospel, I will from this point forward speak in parables, but to those of you who are believing, I will explain what I mean by them. I'm going to intentionally obscure what I'm saying because of their rejection. Now turn back to Mark 10:21. Jesus doesn't obscure anything with this man. He felt a love for him. And that love led him to speak plainly. He speaks with absolute clarity. He minces no words and he puts his finger exactly where the issue is. He doesn't deal with the man's statements. He simply deals with his heart and... He exposes the man's answer. There's one thing you you lack, one thing you come up short. It's the same word for we fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of the target, meaning we don't hit the target at all. We miss it altogether. You're missing it altogether. There's one thing that's keeping you from, from getting it. It's one thing that's causing you to miss it altogether. And he gives the Tenth Commandment in application form. Go and which is thou shalt not covet. Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. And with love in his heart, he tells this man what he knows this man will not hear. And after he inflicts the wound, he says, Come and follow me. It's like an invitation in the Greek. It's an imperative command. He says, Come. Come to me. Come to me. Come and follow me, and then you'll have what, what you seek. And Jesus' demand upon this man reveals this man's true heart. It's, it's not about the law, but his possessions. His attachment is to himself and not God. It's to earth and, and not heaven. Now, why do you think Jesus makes such a demand? One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and, and give to the poor. Do, do you have to give away all of your earthly possessions to, to go to heaven? I mean, you, you leave here. You want to be saved today? Leave here, go to the Salvation Army, and give them the keys to your car, and then have somebody else clean out your bank account. Is that what Jesus is saying? I mean, you know it's not. So here's the second question. Does Jesus make this same demand to everyone who enters the kingdom who's rich? He does not. Matthew, the unjust tax collector, Zacchaeus. Matthew and Zacchaeus who stole for a living. Jesus just simply says to Matthew, the tax collector, follow me. And Zacchaeus is the one who says, I'm going to give half of what I owe. Jesus doesn't make that demand. Jesus says, come down today, I'm going to come eat with you. So it's very clear, Jesus does not make this same demand for everyone who is rich and and yet he's talking about how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom. So why does Jesus say, sell all you have and give it to the poor? It has nothing to do with earning salvation. It's, it's not about poverty. It's not because Jesus wants to do social justice and, and be kind to poor people. 
It's because this man's gaze from 13 years of age was into the mirror of the law and it had only provided a distorted reflection of his own goodness. And so Jesus holds up a mirror to his heart and causes his eyes to see the truth about his real God. He puts his finger on the idol of this religious man's heart and he says, tear it down and follow me. Dig it up by its roots and follow me. Your eyes offending you, pluck it out. That's the idea. Jesus says, this is what's keeping you from God. You want God? You want eternal life? Here's your issue. And He'll do the same thing for you if you want to follow Him. You'll forsake all to follow Him, whatever that is that rivals God. Because unless you forsake whatever rivals Him, you're not really following Him at all. You're simply adding Jesus to your already crowded trophy case. And God will not be rivaled by anything or anyone, and He will not share the podium of your heart. Because He's God. So when you're sharing Jesus Christ with people, Don't offer Jesus to others as some cheap bathroom cologne to solve someone's earthly longings, as if He can be splashed on to make your self-focused, coveting lifestyle smell better. Jesus did not come to cover your stench. You need to be washed, not deodorized. (laughs) You need to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. You need to be washed clean. Your sins are scarlet. They need to be white as snow. They're red. They need to be like like wool. <laughs> Jesus is not additive to your life. It, that's, that's death and resurrection of a whole person is what Jesus is talking about here. Come to me. Die. And I'll give you new life. And discipleship involves positive, a positive and negative demand. Repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. You turn from your sin. You turn to Jesus. You repent and you believe. You you leave your net and you follow me. You deny yourself and you, you take up your cross. You repent and, and you be baptized. Not that baptism is a requirement. It's just a, an act of, of what you're willing to do in your heart. And that's what repentance would entail for, for this man. I told you this story before. I don't think it was in this passage. We did cover this in Luke. But I told you the story before about a friend of mine that I shared Christ with not long after I was I was saved, and I had a great burden for my friends. I, none of them came to the Lord, and I did. And they would tell me that you know it was just winter time, and when the sun came back out, springtime came, I'd be back out with them. And I went to his house to specifically to witness to him, and I found him there alone. And we sat at his kitchen table for a long time, and I, and I shared Christ with him. And I asked him where he stood with God, and, and he said he knew that, that it wasn't good. And um, I told him what he needed to do. I, you, you see the change that God can make in, in, in your life if you'll turn to him. And I can, I, just, I can 
picture this just as sure as I'm sitting here. He, he was visibly shaking. I mean, he was, he was under conviction. His countenance had changed from being carefree. He was very serious at the moment. And I, and I said, he said, I, I, I know what I need to do. And I said, well, what's stopping you? I mean, and he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm having a, I'm having a party in just a few hours. You caught me here because I'm, I'm getting ready for that. And some of our buddies are coming over and many others. And I have a keg out in the garage and it's, it's on ice right now. And, and I know if I do this, then, then I'll have to call that off. And I said, you're right. But you'll go to heaven when you die. And bow the knee and trust Jesus and walk right into that garage and open the tap. It'll pour better whenever it's cold. And let all that garbage come out on the floor of the garage. And then when those guys come tonight, you tell them, I trusted Jesus. I'll stay here with you. I'll tell them with you. And he sat there for a minute and he, and then his countenance changed again and he said, I, I just can't do that. I said, then you can't be saved. Now, what was I saying? Was I I saying that God requires you to pour out beer in order to go to heaven? Drinking beer keeps you from going to heaven? No. God had put his finger on my friend's heart and revealed where his idol was. I didn't. That was his own confession. And the man wouldn't forsake it. And if you won't forsake your other gods, then you can't have the God of heaven. And that's what I was saying to the man. The same thing that Jesus says here to to this man. The true test of his relationship with God was revealed in his response to Christ's invitation. Look, if you would, at verse 22. Does this man really want God? Follow me, here I am. But these words, but at these words, he was saddened. He became gloomy. That word's only used one other time in the New Testament in Matthew 16, verse 3, and it means gloomy. The weather was gloomy. And at these words, he was sad, and, and he went away grieving. And Mark tells us exactly why. For he was one who owned much property. His face showed his response, his action. Showed his choice, and he came bowing and asking, and he left walking away and grieving. He came feeling unsure about his status with God, and he left sensing the surety of his status with God. And if that's all you do in evangelism, you have done a good work. If you take somebody from their sense that they're right with God, and you reveal to them that they're not right with God... That's part of evangelism. He never questioned what Jesus said. He never questioned the truthfulness of what Jesus said. He didn't argue. He just just walked away. Despite his humble approach, despite his concern over his own soul, despite his bowed knee, despite his sincere request, despite his moral sincerity, despite being loved by Jesus, he goes away lost. You find that odd? You shouldn't. Because a man doesn't always outwardly reject Christ in 
in outright hatred. Many times, most of the time, it's out of too much love for something else. Matthew Henry said, He may wrestle with his convictions and corruption, but corruption carries the day. Men are sorry they cannot serve God and sin, but if one must be quitted, it shall be God and not worldly gain. So you say, wow, how do I know? Well, I'd say you do. I'd say if you're sitting here and you're listening to the Word of God being faithfully preached, God is being faithful to put His finger on whatever it might be in your soul. But if not, let me help you. How do you know? How do I know if I truly love Christ? And J.C. Ryle writes this. If we love a person, we like to think about them. We don't need to be reminded about him. We don't forget his name or his appearance or his character or his opinion or his taste or his position or his occupation. It's just natural. If you love God, you'll think about Him. He says if we love a person, we, we like to hear about Him. We find pleasure in listening to those who speak about Him. We, we feel an interest in any report which, which others make of Him. It's, it's just so, He says, between a true Christian and, and Christ. We like to hear about Him. You like to hear about God? If we love a person, He said we, we, we like to read about Him. What intense pleasure a letter from an absent husband brings to a wife. A letter from, a, from an absent son to his mother. Well, it's just so between a true Christian and Christ. He says if we love a person, we like to please him. We're glad to consult his tastes and opinions, to act upon their advice and do the things which he approves. If we love a person, we like his friends. We're favorably inclined to them, even before we know them. We're drawn to them by a common tie of common love for the same person. Hopefully you're hearing First John, love of the brethren there. If we love a person, we're jealous about his name and his honor. We, we don't like to hear him spoken against without speaking up for him and, and defending him. We don't like to hear someone take the name of Christ in vain. We find no, no problem defending him. If we love a person, we like to talk about him. And finally, if we love a person, we like to always be with him. Thinking and hearing and reading and occasionally talking are all well in their way. But when we really love someone, we will want more. That should be the longing in your heart. More. More. More Word. More Christ. More Bible. More church. More, more believers. More understanding. More love. And that's what heaven is. It's more. It's a never-ending more of Jesus Christ. So if you don't love Him here, you'll not be interested whatsoever in heaven. But if you love Him now, 
Heaven will be a glorious, glorious place. And you'll get your desire.